So we're building towards a future that actually, ironically, looks more like blockchains did before rollups arrived, which is that state is ultimate state growth and state size and so on is the ultimate bottleneck that was always the case, really. It's just currently obfuscated by expensive call data. And this is a transient thing. It will go back very quickly to call data is cheap and uh, state is expensive. And when we're in that, uh, when we're in that space, in, in that place, uh, fuel is you know, well positioned to be way ahead of any other rollup that isn't actually working towards this. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research, presented by Chainalysis and Flipside. Today is January twenty third, uh, and we have a great interview with John Adler, who is heavily involved in the blockchain industry as a whole. Uh, but specifically today, we're talking about Fuel Labs, which is an execution layer uh, built for a modular blockchain world. So, a super exciting conversation. He is insanely smart and intelligent, uh, and you can really just tell his passion for blockchain as a whole. And it's a great conversation. So, um, you know, before we get to that, as usual, we have our intro seg segment, and we are joined by Ren and Zero X Pibbles from the Blockworks Research Team to discuss the latest market happenings. And uh, we'd like to do this through a, a segment of Hot Seat Cool Throne. Um, so, Ren, I'll kind of throw it over to you. Who do you got this weekend? Are they in the hot seat or the cool throne? Yeah, I got the Wormhole Exploiter in the hot seat. So, I remember in around February of last year, Wormhole got exploited for around $300 million at that time, which was around 120,000 ETH. The exploiter then bridged around 90,000 worth of ETH to the Ethereum mainnet. He's been on the move again today. He just turned 95,000 ETH into roughly 95,000 stake ETH, and is now the fifth largest holder of stake ETH. He's then gone on to borrow some DAI against that and then swap that back to stake ETH. So he's in a very, very leveraged long stake ETH position right now. We're not really sure what the end goal is here. Um, it seems like maybe he's bored. He just wants to leverage long and degen a bit. Maybe part of him wants to get liquidated on Ave loan. But it's hard to say. Yeah, no, this is definitely an interesting one, right? Like, you know, what, every time I see these massive amounts, sums of money getting stolen, uh, the the first question is like, all right, well, how are you going to get that off chain? What are you going to do with it? And the reality is it's not that easy to just take uh, crypto and turn it into dollars or whatever currency of your choosing um, without being able to do so without being like regulated. Uh, so the reality, reality of the matter is if even if you pull off a massive exploit, uh, you're really just kind of trapped with these on-chain dollars. So uh, while it's probably something more interesting than you know him just getting bored, in my opinion, uh, it does like beg the question of like, all right, well, what's his game plan here? Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it very well just might be a degen just trying to have some fun on-chain. Is it Lido's Steeth that he's levering up? Okay, it is. Yeah, I wonder. That's interesting because that makes me think maybe he's like purposefully trying to get you know liquidated, potentially pull stake ETH off peg. And then you know buy up that discount on his PA, so maybe that's one angle. I think Macaulay uh, kind of alluded to something similar. So sorry, Macaulay uh, is on the editorial team. So shout out to Macaulay. <laughs> but uh, I can go ahead and jump into my uh, cool throne of the week. This one's pretty easy. Circle. They just uh, released docs over the weekend for CCTP, which is cross-chain transfer portal, and they're describing it as a utility for anyone to permissionlessly go in and uh, burn USDC on a source chain and then mint it on a destination chain. So you'd always have native e or USDC. And that's pretty huge in the bridging landscape of things because that's commonly been like one of the biggest hurdles in crypto UX and security. So uh, to, to see them making this push forward is, is super exciting. And honestly, I can't 
imagine there aren't going to be some fee revenue generated off of this. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's once again, another bullish uh, circle development. And normally how bridges work is you lock up an asset on the source chain, and then you actually mint a, a wrapped asset on the destination chain. So that kind of creates a huge target for hackers to, to kind of target the, uh, the native assets on the source chain because there's so much value just locked up there. And, you know, we've seen billions of dollars of bridge hacks as a result. So this will definitely improve security um, as well as improving the user experience. Zero X research listeners had this one first. Um, actually, it was the DYDX episode a little over a month ago with uh, kind of got we got when you got the first little sneak peek of that this exact thing becoming live. You know, I think DYDX is going to leverage this and help them get USDC inflows into their protocol. Um, and you know, even a couple of weeks ago, this still wasn't being talked about. I actually fired off a tweet that was like, this is the most underdiscussed development in DeFi. Uh, and today that's no longer true, right? This has been kind of the talk of the town and rightfully so, uh, it seems like a great way to kind of circumvent the bridge risk that we commonly deal with. I guess the, the, the drawback or the downside of this is it, you know, obviously circle is a fiat backed stablecoin That's very regulation compliant. Uh, and for like the decentralization maxis, this still might not be attractive to them. Yeah, I am a little concerned on like how permissionless it's going to be. Um, like, what if you have to like, I don't know, I could see like down the road, they're like, all right, you have to KYC if you want to use this bridge, like the same way you would want to, you would have to KYC if you were trying to actually cash out on the Circle website, which I don't know. I don't know anyone who's ever done that personally. That's a good point too, Pibbles. It's like if it becomes super ingrained in the main way to transfer value cross chain, they kind of have like a stranglehold on DeFi, kind of a, a an angle I hadn't considered and something to definitely keep an eye on going forward because last thing we want is KYC from Avalanche to Solana to back to Ethereum. Like that, that just sounds like an absolute nightmare. I would say that bridge liquidity would still probably exist, but there definitely is a world in which no one would use multi-chain bridges anymore, such as Synapse, Hub, because one could basically go from, say, ETH to Avalanche by swapping ETH to USDC, burning the USDC and then minting it on Avalanche, and then swapping that for AVAX on Avalanche. So maybe there's an equilibrium there between bridges and Circle CCTP in terms of sort of the slippage that you experience on a DEX versus the fees that you would get on a bridge. But I do agree that the KYC concerns still stand. Yeah, I mean, if this is a very low fee a way to transfer between ecosystems, transfer value between these ecosystems, I have a hard time believing that this wouldn't become one of the, you know one of the most popular ways to do so. Uh, you know, granted the the risk seems low, the efficiency seems very high, and I think those you know that combination tends to to do very well. Uh, but to jump back over to a hot seat, uh, I've actually got optimism in it this week. Everyone kind of saw the charts circulating around of total transactions and activity on chain um, between Arbitrum and Optimism. And quick shill for the, the BlockWorks Research Dune account. Uh, we've got a great dashboard comparing the two. Uh, but everyone kind of saw these charts circulating around saying how Optimism has, you know, crossed over Arbitrum and, you know, people are, you know, users are loving uh, what's going on on Optimism. And then their quest program ended and that, we just saw a near crash to zero in terms of on-chain uh, activity. And that can really just gives credence to the fact that it appears the entire usage was just truly incentive, incentivized hunting. And, uh, you know, there's like, they're giving away these NFTs. There's a likely a second uh, OP airdrop that's related to the uh, activity done in, this, in these quests. And, you know, the quest ends and we get a straight to zero plummet on, on, this, 
on these activities. So I don't know. It's like hard to make of, you know, what this really is. But I, at the end of the day, I think it really just kind of shows you that if you, you really need the developers to be building valuable products on your chain, if you want the users to stick around. Yeah. I think this is a, a fair hot seat. Those transaction, uh, Counts and daily active addresses pretty much halved overnight uh, just because people were trying to farm, you know, whatever, whether it's the NFTs or whether it's a potential future OP airdrop. I also know like the OP tokens like four or five X off the lows. So that's only driving incentives even further. Um, but yeah, I still admire the the optimism vision, you know, with Bedrock and kind of like a modular stack that they're trying to build out. I think it fits really well in line with what ZK Sync's doing, you know, what StarkNet's trying to accomplish. And really, you see every L2 trying to put together like a an L3 or modular stack strategy. So I am bullish on on optimism as a, a, a chain going forward. And I think they're going to accomplish some really cool things. But uh, yeah, there's no doubt that not all that or activity is actually organic. I think one of the larger implications of the dropping transactions and optimism would be for Arbitrum. Arbitrum is probably Optimism's largest competitor in terms of L2 these days and does not have a token yet, even though everybody's sort of expecting a token at some point. So now the question becomes, what should Arbitrum do when they eventually release a token? Should they do a similar airdrop or farming program? Or would that perhaps be net negative for the ecosystem as users or traders using the ecosystem transfer the mental model from I'm here for the good tech and the cool protocols to I'm only here for the token airdrop. And I think that's something that's very important to consider, not just for L2s, but also just for in general airdrop programs in the future for different ecosystems and L2s. Yeah, that's a great point, Ren, especially when you consider, you know, if you look at like the UX between Arbitrum and Optimism today, it's really not that different uh, on the user's end. I think the the way it feels, the way it interacts, the the time to your transactions for the time it takes for your transactions to be completed, it all feels generally the same. Uh, so the reality is, the users aren't going to get. You know, I haven't met that many people. Of course, there's always the maxis out there, but I haven't met that many people. Who are like I'm only using Arbitrum because I love the tech, as especially when you're comparing between L2 and L2. Uh, so. It really comes down to the the application level and what's there, what are people using? And you know, right now we see things like GM actually leading the way for L2s. Yeah, I think it was Sisyphus I saw on Twitter tweet uh, over the weekend, like Arbitrum, like all these other L2s without a token, they're not gonna be able to keep up with optimism because they do have a token and that they're wasting time. But I view it as completely the other way around. Like I view like a token allocation is like the protocol's ammunition to like continue to attract users and the longer Arbitrum and ZK Sync and these other L2s can like maintain a strong community without a token, I think the longer the runway will like ultimately be. So sorry, sis, I do not agree with you on that take. I think that's spot on, Sam, especially when you consider like, okay, well, what's the use of, what's the utility behind OP today? Okay, not much. Like when it's actually decentralizing the sequencer and playing a key role in the ecosystem and has a value accrual, all right, well then, yeah, that's that's probably true, but that is just not where we're at today. I wish, I mean, that brings up a whole other point around like when are we going to get actual L2s that use fraud proofs to settle to mainnet as opposed to like just trusting a centralized entity, which is the reality uh, that we're living in today. Yeah, strong agree there. Pibbles, I'll kick it over to you for your cool throne of the week. Yeah, I have Aptos in the cool throne. Um, I know everyone loved to just like, you know, take a fat shit on Aptos when it launched because it launched in the middle of a bear market. Um, but the token is up almost 4x in like a month. And now I think the fully diluted valve is like 14 billion. So it's like the biggest L1 
by FDV right now. Um, but yeah, even through all the FUD, I mean, someone could have just forexed their money right there if they were paying attention. Um, what's also funny about that is there's only 55 mil TVL on the actual chain. And one of the biggest uh, protocols on there is PancakeSwap. But um, go people who long Daptos. Good for you. It wasn't me. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I was pretty early in bridging over there. Just like one of those moods where I'm just like, I'm going to go ex- you know, experiment, see what's going on with the full expectation of losing everything. Uh, through a, not not any large sum of money by any means, but through some through some assets and some shit coins over there, totally forgot about it. Apto starts pumping, and I go back and check, and like a three four x on Apto, like I mean that thing fifty x in a while. But that's that's a, just the reality of it. Is I went over there trying to do like legitimate things and like actually see what the chain has to offer. But I get over there and there's nothing built. It's just, you know, we launched a chain probably because we have a horribly allocated token and, you know, vesting tokens can accrue rewards. So the faster we get the chain out, the more rewards we can get, the more money we make. Um, and, you know, ideally you kind of like get the tech working through a couple of test nets and then get developers building on test nets. And then when you launch, you actually have things built. Uh, it just seems like a clearly a better way to operate a blockchain. Uh, but that's simply not what we got. So at the end of the day, the price did certainly pump. And, uh, you know, I, if you go back and look over there, you know, there really still aren't any legitimate tokens over there. Everything that's like uh, has the most liquidity on chain uh, is like your USDCs, your 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 weath pools. It's pretty funny because even like the the token is the tokens are a complete mess because all everything you bridge over there, there's like a layer zero usdc and a layer zero weath and then there's a wormhole usdc and a wormhole eth like so the, it's just so fragmented um but at the end of the day it's they're in the cool seat because number go up yeah they've got like 50 million of tvl just on dexes so pretty much everyone just going over there to swap coins around with each other <laughs> it's absolutely it's really funny actually but do you guys know what uh valuation investors got in at there because i mean 13 billion fully diluted i'm, I'm curious how they're sitting here Surely 0.000001 cent. So they're, they're probably chilling. I have no idea what the valuation was. I think the last round that happened for Aptos was at a few billion. I want to say 3.5 billion, though I'm not sure. It's actually funny because I didn't realize this up until a few months ago, but the Aptos CEO, Mohammed, I followed like a startup that he did before Aptos. It was a shared property ownership on the blockchain. He started that off for a few years already. And I don't think that went anywhere until he started Aptos. And I think he's basically given up on that project. I will say one thing to keep an eye on, on Aptos is it's something called like Tsunami. Maybe it's like Tsunami Finance, but I think they're just trying to be like perps on Aptos. But I mean, it is a high performance blockchain. Like maybe they can actually have an on-chain order book and stuff. So, um, they're on like testnet right now, but I've been meaning to go over there and uh, give that a try in case there's an airdrop or something. But I have not been over to Aptos yet like Dan has. So I just saw I had to download a new wallet and I just kind of like sighed. I don't know. Maybe I'll do it at some point. No, that's fair. I have two new wallets and like half my money was in each of the wallets. Like uh, I, I can give you some recommendations though. One's definitely better than the other. Um, but word of caution, I used layer zero to bridge over there, seamless getting there. Uh, but to get back, you need 1 million block confirmations, which is roughly three days. So now I'm just sitting in bridge limbo for three days. 
That's absolutely hilarious. Three and a half days, one million block confirms. That's absolutely crazy. <laughs> uh, Dan, I'll kick it over to you for a uh, chart of the day if you're ready. Yeah, I'll get this thing uh, shared up on the screen here. Again, we have the we have a, a bounty running. So if you want to go ahead and you know even work towards answering a specific question, uh, you get the opportunity to earn some free USDC. Uh, so before we jump into that, uh, you know, again, just want to thank Flipside for everything that they do in sponsoring this show. As usual, we do the Flipside dashboard reviews, and this is a dashboard built by Jack the Guy. So another uh, common name we're seeing here. So shout out to Jack the Guy. And this one specifically covers uh, Cosmos ecosystem voting. And it's pretty interesting. I thought, so if we look at this chart here on the top left, uh, you know, we have a bar chart from, you know, early in July 21 to current in January 2023. Uh, and it kind of just shows you the voter participation on chains throughout the cosmos. Uh, personally, I was expecting this to be heavily correlated to price action. Uh, but you see, we actually topped out in May. Um, and that kind of gives me a little bit of this interesting feeling or sorry, May 2022. Um, and that's kind of like when we were really in the depths of the bear market. And uh, we really hit that second peak in price in November 2021, uh, before trending lower. But it's almost there's actually a little bit more of an interesting story there is like once price started plummeting, you, you know, maybe it was people coming on chain and be like, Hey, like we need to fix things. Like let's optimize our chain to get uh, more value accrual or things of that nature. Uh, so I don't know, maybe that's the takeaway here, but very interesting to see, uh, you know, governance participation really leveled out in between March and May of 2022. That's a super fair take. I feel like Dan, cause like every other chart in crypto is just, down and to the right. <laughs> and I'm really surprised that uh, voting participation isn't the same. I actually can speak from firsthand experience. Like I do vote on on protocols that I've been invested in since the highs because I'm like, let's try and fix things and make this a little bit better. Uh, so that that's a this is a cool dashboard. I really like it. Yeah, I think they should definitely just like hard cut it to $100. That's what I would do as well. I love it. I love it. And you know, I guess the 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 most interesting takeaway here is if you look at where we started in voter participation in late 2021 and where we're at now, you know, we're like five, six X off the bottom. Uh, so it's kind of cool to see just more users in general being interested in participating uh, in on-chain governance. So that's kind of like my takeaway from this. But again, the only reason we can even see this is because Flipside is offering this free on-chain data, uh, super comprehensive, covers 17 or so chains now. Uh, and it, Here's a good little tidbit is their decoded logs table is coming live soon. It's currently in beta, uh, but I've been messing around with it a good bit. Uh, it's based on Ethereum mainnet only right now, uh, but it's eventually be rolled out to all EVM chains just because of the uh, similarities between how the chains themselves offer, operate. But this really enables you to, to analyze any piece of data that gets recorded in the event logs and is super, super powerful. Uh, so, you know, again, if you're kind of new to SQL or SQL, uh, which is the coding language that you use to build these visualizations. It's pretty easy to learn, lots of free resources available to do so. Um, and again, when you kind of have this like motivation to understand on-chain data, it just becomes super, super easy. And Flipside really makes that uh, super powerful to make great analysis. And I'd like to take a moment to thank our other wonderful sponsor, Chainalysis. They're one of the leading crypto analytics providers that are helping provide the tools to legitimize our industry. I mentioned it last week, but they just dropped their uh, crime report in 2022 that measures the amount of illicit activity that goes on on-chain. And they found that 0.24% of on-chain activity was related to illicit activity. And a lot of the reason for that is the bridge hacks that we experienced last year, 
as well as the OFAC compliance list with uh, Tornado Cash. So that's the first uptick we've seen since 2019, but it really does do a good job putting it into perspective. No one's really using this stuff to do illicit activity. It's a terrible idea. It's it's all public. Like You, you shouldn't be doing it uh, there if you want to launder funds. They also offer some really awesome courses, some other research, uh, and we'll be sure to link to all that in the show notes. So thanks again to Chainalysis for sponsoring our show. And now here is John Adler from Fuel Labs. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We are joined by John Adler, the co-founder of Celestia and Fuel. We'll be focusing on fuel today. And John also has done a lot of work uh, in the research uh, part of the space as it relates to optimistic roll So thanks for joining us, John. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I wanted to start out just kind of at a high level because fuel is like a modular execution layer. And the four uh, you know, typical job functions of a monolithic uh, blockchain are going to be consensus, settlement, data availability, and execution. Uh, why did you choose to pivot into a modular execution layer and what exactly does fuel do? Pivot from what? Uh, weren't you guys starting as a optimistic rollup on Ethereum, I believe, and then pivoted yes, that's over? Correct. Okay. Yes. It might be a good time to distinguish what do you mean by just a roll-up versus a modular execution layer. Uh, and then you'll see that maybe it wasn't so much of a pivot as much as it was like just coming into what we wanted to do all along. So one analogy I like to use is the analogy between USB and Thunderbolt, right? Like the, U the USB specification says, you know, there's some, so here's, some form, here's some form factor, and then you can support such and such protocols. For instance, you can support you know, display over USB-C. You can also support data over USB, right? Uh, some USB cables don't have data. They're just, they're just a power and so on, right? And it's why if you buy a USB cable, if it's just a USB cable, it might not be capable of uh, having display to a monitor, right? It might just be usable for charging your device. Uh, but Thunderbolt uh, is the same thing as USB fundamentally. It's just USB with all the features enabled, uh, and they must be enabled. So, like, if you buy a Thunderbolt cable, uh, then you're guaranteed that you know it will be able to send display through, and you will be able to use it for also charging your device, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, of course, they're more expensive. Uh, so this is how this is an analogous to how rollups versus modular execution layers work. So a rollup is primarily and only uh, it only considers the validity of a bridge contract to a settlement layer. It doesn't necessarily have to be a settlement layer, but you know, for now, for simplicity, let's consider a settlement layer. Uh, and the problem is that this is not the same thing as a light client, right? And I'll give you an example of why this is. Uh, concretely, not as like a hypothetical example, but as some rollups actually do this. Uh, if you want to know that uh, some withdrawal happened in some rollup, or if you want to know that some new block that is posted by the rollup block producer, the sequencer is valid, you only really need to know that the block header is valid. And the block header consists of things like a state route and some commitment to transactions. Uh, in a normal blockchain, such as Bitcoin or Ethereum, this commitment to transactions is a Merkle tree, but it doesn't have to be, right? And a lot of rollups have taken a shortcut of instead of having a Merkle tree, why don't we just make it cheaper? Why don't we just make it one hash, right? And this cuts down on the amount of work that the rollup needs to do. And you can still have a proof that the state root and the block header are valid. 
and the rollup will still function just as it normally does, right? Every block is valid, given certain assumptions, people can withdraw from there, they have all the nice security guarantees, and it's all good. But when it comes time to run a light client for this rollup, if the rollup doesn't have a Merkle tree of transactions, you can't actually prove that your transaction was, you can't prove to the light client succinctly that its transaction was included in the block. And Satoshi Nakamoto actually had an entire section in the Bitcoin design paper dedicated to SPV clients, light clients, right? Where he described, we're going to use a Merkle tree to enable light clients. If you don't care about light clients, you don't need a Merkle tree. You don't need a Merkle tree of the, you don't need a Merkle tree of the, of the transactions. You technically also don't need a Merkle tree of the state, but that's usually needed for validity stuff. Uh, so that's a problem because I would like to run a light node off my rollup, right? Otherwise, well, how do I even know if my transaction has been included in a block or not? I would have to trust someone or I would have to run a full node for that rollup. And if the rollup has a very high cost to run a full node, now you see why that's a problem. So a modular execution layer fundamentally has the nice properties that you would get out of a rollup. In other words, you're it's you know some blockchain that runs alongside a settlement layer. You're guaranteed that it's valid and all this stuff. But it has these additional nice properties guaranteed, while in a rollup, they're optional because they're not the focus. And one of these nice properties is with a modular execution layer, you can run an off-chain like client. And it'll run, it'll work just like a like client works today on any normal blockchain like Bitcoin or Ethereum. You'll be able to get a proof that your transaction was in the block. You'll be able to get a proof that the state of some contract was such and such at a particular block and so on. And these these properties are not guaranteed by just vanilla rollups. So with Fuel, we're building a modular, modular execution layer. We're not settling for just a rollup. We want users to have the maximum security and the maximum flexibility across the whole stack. So why are we doing this? Well, I mean, I just answered why we're doing this, right? And we didn't really pivot away from doing this. I would say we didn't call it this when we were building Fuel V1, uh, but we were building Fuel V1 with all these properties in mind. Great. That's super helpful. So I guess if I'm getting this right, does it does it seem like today rollups are really optimizing to just fit as much transaction data opposed to Ethereum as possible? And you guys are kind of taking the, the bet that data availability is going to become cheaper over time and really state growth is going to be the main problem? Yeah. So that's a, that's a follow-up point. And I think it's a very important one in how we design Fuel. Uh, you're correct that a lot of rollups today uh, assume and are built under the constraint of very expensive data or call uh, call data as it, as it is called today. Uh, and we're building towards the very near future when you have solutions like EIP 4844, proto dank sharding, uh, then full on dank sharding, uh, potentially systems like Celestia or Eigenlayer uh, that can provide greatly increased data throughput. Uh, for rollups, and we're building towards that very near future instead of the current present. And why are we building towards it? Because we don't want to build a system that's going to become obsolete in a very short period of time. And we don't want to force developers and users to spend a bunch of resources and time and so on developing an ecosystem that, again, will be obsolete in like months, not years. Uh, so quite a few rollups today uh, their economic design and how they charge people for different things on the rollup makes call data very expensive. This has forced developers to rewrite their contracts to use less call data and use more state. 
which is a really perverse incentive because now you have these rollups that are just taking on state bloat at a much faster rate uh, than Ethereum mainnet. And Ethereum mainnet already has a very big problem with state bloat. It's one of the you know, big bottlenecks and big things that the uh, core client developers have been trying to improve on and that various, pro uh, various protocol changes to the Ethereum protocol have tried to mitigate. And now you have these rollups that are basically undoing all that work uh, that to the EVM and to the Ethereum protocol, and they're just you know, letting people go crazy on, on state bloat, uh, and it's really horrific. And this will come back to bite them because that state, you can't really discard it. You've now kind of locked users into having a system with all the state, and if you want to run a full node for this rollup, congrats, you need to you know, sync just a, a huge amount of state, and that state is not going to disappear anywhere. So we're building towards a future that actually, ironically, looks more like blockchains did before rollups arrived, which is that state is ultimate state growth and state size and so on is the ultimate bottleneck that was always the case, really. It's just currently obfuscated by expensive call data. And this is a transient thing. It will go back very quickly to call data is cheap and uh, state is expensive. And when we're in that, uh, when we're in that spit and in, in that place, uh, fuel is you know, well positioned to be way ahead of any other rollup that isn't actually working towards this. So we jumped right into the the deep stuff, but I guess just to take it back to a little bit of a higher level, do you mind kind of going through the different architectures that can be built using fuel fuel? Because I know there is like a bunch of different plug and play ways you could you could utilize it. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that there are currently plug and play ways, but there will be plug and play ways in the not too distant future. This is a lot of implementation work. Uh, but we aren't, as a modular execution layer, we aren't building a system that must be a rollup that settles to Ethereum and only Ethereum and that uses only current Ethereum mainnet as its source of uh, data availability, right? Uh, we are building modular software in addition to a modular protocol, like a modular blockchain. Uh, the software is also modularized in the sense that it is agnostic to the data layer and settlement layer as much as humanly possible, and that is generic. So it's very easy for someone to modify the software. And for instance, instead of using Ethereum mainnet today for data availability, it could use Ethereum post EIP 4844. And that'd be very easy because we didn't bake any assumptions into the software in, and into the fuel protocol that it must use Ethereum mainnet as it exists today. Uh, other projects are also working towards similar flavors of this. Uh, Optimism Bedrock, for instance, is a more generic form of Optimism. Uh, is you know their pre-Bedrock uh, work is very heavily uh, linked to Ethereum mainnet, and then just like as all the assumptions they make are around Ethereum mainnet must be the data layer that we use. Uh, their Bedrock is much more generic. So I'm excited to see other rollup projects also going in the direction of also building modular software. And so just to like dive deeper uh, in, into that state growth stuff we were just talking about, right? So what what specifically does Fuel doing differently that, you know, kind of shifts away from that, uh, the model of like, you know, making really cheap call data and, and into kind of like uh, solving that state issue? So there's a few things it does. One of them, which is going to be very very stupid and obvious is, well, just don't make call data expensive. Uh, just, just, uh, I just, just make call data cheap and more importantly, make state rights expensive. Uh, I did give a talk about this at the Ethereum community conference uh, last year, I guess last year, because we're in January now. So last year, 
uh, and uh, I kind of compare the gas schedule, uh, like the way different instructions and different operations in blockchains are priced. I compare that to effectively regulation by the protocol itself in how it is used. And you can actually incentivize and like push people towards using the blockchain in certain ways through this gas schedule. So the simplest thing you're going to do is if you want to mitigate state growth, make growing the state more expensive, potentially even more expensive than it would be like to physically grow the state, make it even more expensive than that to like greatly discourage people from doing that. Uh, at Fuel, we also have a number of, uh, given the fact that we can design a virtual machine from scratch and we don't have to be, we don't require EVM equivalents, but rather we can say, let's take the EVM and let's improve on it. Uh, so it's not exactly from scratch. It's more like a VM based on the EVM, but with various improvements. But it allows us to make these improvements because we're not tied with backwards compatibility. And some of the improvements we can make uh, are, there were various proposals throughout the years. And when I was at Consensus doing scalability research, I was kind of involved in, some, in either directly or tangentially in some of these proposals around stateless Ethereum. Uh, you may remember from back in the day, it was called the Ethereum 1. Point X initiative, or is it Ethereum 1X? I forget exactly how they meant it. It was, it was 1.X something. Uh, that was uh, trying to make the EVM stateless so that full nodes didn't have to store the whole state. They could store like a subset of the state or potentially even just the state root uh, and be provided witnesses to the state uh, as, as part of transactions. Now, that didn't go anywhere because the EVM has a bunch of things that make it not work with statelessness, but with the Fuel VM, we designed it such that it would be very conducive to make it stateless because we knew all the constraints and all the issues that stateless Ethereum kind of ran into and couldn't overcome without major breaking changes to the protocol just for statelessness. But you know, we, we, don't, we don't have backwards compatibility baggage. So we say, okay, well, let's design the protocol from scratch so that it's very easy to make it stateless in the future if we need to. So there's various things like that, that you know you can have a gas schedule and you can also have a protocol that's conducive to statelessness, which is kind of the ultimate solution to state growth. Make it so that you just don't store state at all. And then your state growth is solved. If you can't tell, we love data here at Blockroots Research. And Chainalysis, the leading blockchain analytics company, shares this passion with us. We use data to extract alpha and find the next thing coming in DeFi, but Chainalysis is doing the gritty work and building trust in blockchains. To onboard the next trillion dollars of capital into the industry, we need to grow safe consumer access to cryptocurrency and promote more financial freedom with less risk. Chainalysis has some of the most comprehensive and reliable data in the space, and they use this data to power a full suite of their solutions that can be utilized by industry professionals. Best-in-class training and certifications are also led by Chainalysis and some of the brightest minds in the space. If you haven't heard of Chainalysis, you got to check them out, and we'll link to them in the show notes. Do you mind diving in? I guess we'll start with UTXO and how that differs from Ethereum's account-based you know, model. Sure. I can talk about UTXO as how it differs from Ethereum and also how it differs from Cardano, because uh, that's another blockchain that you know purports to use UTXO as well, also allowing smart contracts and stuff. Uh, and I can also maybe explain how, Bitcoin, how this is related to Bitcoin as well. Uh, so uh, Ethereum uses accounts for representing user balances and contracts, and just state in general. So what's an account? An account is, well, there's, there could be contract code if there's code, but if not, it could be like just an EOA, an externally owned account, 
which means that uh, it's like a private key. It's a pu private pu public-private key pair, right? Which is like just an address. Uh, so it could either be you know an EOA or a contract, and then it has some ether balance, and it also has a nonce. And the only reason you need a nonce is to prevent replay attacks. Uh, it's essentially a way of uniquifying actions that the account takes, right? So if it's an EOA, uh, you want to sign over, you know, you know if the EOA is Alice's, you know, you're going to sign over a transaction that says Alice sends five ether to Bob with a unique nonce. Because if you didn't sign over a unique nonce, then Bob could just take the signature and replay it and get another five ether and another five ether, right? So you, you need some way of uniquifying this action of sending five ether. Uh, UTXOs work a bit different in the sense that a UTXO transaction doesn't, well, just a UTXO data model doesn't have like these notions of accounts with a nonce, right? Rather, every single thing that is sent is its own unique state element. So if you have five ether and you send some to Alice and some to Bob, you're not incrementing Alice's balance by, let's say, two and Bob's balance by three. Rather, you're giving Alice a two ether coin and Bob a three ether coin. And these coins act independently of the other coins they have. Uh, so every single thing is its own independent state element. And just by construction, it means you don't need a nonce because every element has a unique ID uh, starting from the genesis of the chain. Uh, effectively, you just kind of have a chain of hashes, right? And as long as you start from something unique, which obviously you do because it's a blockchain, then every, you know, every hash in the chain, you know, the hash uh, just by the properties of cryptographic hash functions, right? The hash of something, if you just keep hashing and hashing and hashing, you should never get a collision. Because if you do, well, then the, the hash function is not collision resistant, right? So just so that's basically how UTXOs work is that you just keep hashing the previous things and this is the giant like hash onion. Obviously, you can mix some stuff in and so on. But regardless, by construction, it means you don't need a nonce, which is pretty nice because it means that you can actually fully consume state. So like if Alice takes her two ether coin and sends some to Bob and Charlie, she no longer has that coin. And the notion that that coin ever existed does not need to be kept track of. Right? If Alice completely empties her account on Ethereum, you still need to keep track of the nonce because you don't want to then have someone you know, replay her, her earlier transactions after she reloads her balance. Uh, so you, in, the, in the account data model, you kind of always need to keep track of the nonce and UTXOs you don't, which is nice, but that's maybe a bit minor, right? It's not like the most big thing. Oh, okay, you keep track of a nonce, big deal, right? The really important thing with UTXOs is that they enable you very easily to do parallel transaction execution. Because you can just look at two transactions and you can say if they touch UTXOs or if they touch state that is completely dis disjoint, then they can be executed in parallel, right? There's no dependence between the transactions. Therefore, you don't need a total ordering. They don't need to be executed one after the other. You can execute them at the same time because there's a partial ordering, right? And this is very powerful because modern computers haven't really gotten much faster in single-threaded performance, but they have like a shitload more cores than they did 10 years ago. Right? So they have way more multi-threaded performance, not so much single-threaded performance. Let's leverage those extra cores that are literally just sitting there. Like if on an Ethereum full node, just you know, running one full one core at full throttle, which is like fine, but then the other, like, you know, if you have a 16-core processor, the other 15 cores are just sitting there doing nothing. That could be validating transactions. Right? We would like to unlock that. 
so UTXO has happened to be just baked into the like, transactions themselves. You have to say, I'm touching these UTXOs. And if you know which UTXOs the transactions touch, it's trivial to parallelize execution of transactions. And that's, there's a few other reasons to use UTXOs, but the main, that's one of the main benefits that we effectively get for free. And this is different than basically any other, any other rollup is that we get parallel transaction execution for free. So now I should probably talk about how smart contracts work and how those are different than Bitcoin and Cardano. Because it went over kind of the performance benefits that differentiated from Ethereum. Now in terms of smart contracts, how is it different than Bitcoin and Cardano? So Bitcoin has smart contracts. Uh, it's, you know, it's, a common, it's, probably, it's, it's, it's like a common saying that it doesn't have a smart contract. It does, but its contracts are stateless. So Bitcoin smart contracts do not have access to some state that, that can be updated over a period of multiple transactions. So for instance, a Bitcoin transaction could say, could be multisig. So or not, a multi, not a Bitcoin transaction, but rather if I want to be technical, the spending condition of a UTXO in a transaction could be like a multisig, right? So it could be something completely stateless, like two of three signatures from these three public keys, right? That's stateless. You don't need X, you don't need anything that crosses multiple transactions, right? They're just like a multisig, completely stateless, right? As long as you can provide two of three signatures from the this, the set of three public keys, then you know spend the spend the UTXO. You're all good. Something like Uniswap, however, right? Uniswap is relies on state, right? There's an LP pool, and the X and Y, the amount of each token, actually gets updated after each transaction, right? And like a subsequent trans transaction needs to know the effects of a previous transaction in order to actually calculate the price of an asset. Right? That's stateful uh, because it relies on some thing, some state that actually gets updated over multiple transactions. Uh, and that's kind of the main differentiator between how smart contracts on Bitcoin and Ethereum work. Now, we would like to have stateful transactions like Ethereum, but we would like them to also be able to be executed in parallel and leverage the power of UTXOs, right? So how does Cardano do this? The way Cardano does it is they effectively have, they have a hybrid system, and we also do, where accounts, or sorry, where contracts are effectively accounts, right? And if two transactions touch the same contract, right, then similar to Ethereum, those two transactions must be executed one after the other, so sequentially. And this is reasonable. What's unreasonable, what's unreasonable about Cardano, though, is that they, their system is that users will sign over the effects of a transaction in their entirety. And this is, how the, this is what you do in Bitcoin, right? You sign over the whole transaction and its effects. And the reason you can do this as a user very easily is because all the UTXOs are stateless, right? All the spending conditions are stateless. So it doesn't matter what anyone else does. The effects of a transaction in Bitcoin will not change. The transaction could be, it could become invalid if someone double spends one of the UTXOs that are being spent by that transaction. But the, other than that, the effects of the transaction will always be the same in Bitcoin. From the time that you sign it to the end of the universe, the heat death of the universe, they'll be the same because transactions are stateless. Right? The spending conditions, rather, are stateless in Bitcoin. In Cardano, they're not. And in Ethereum, they're not, right? If I make a trade on Uniswap, the amount I get, okay, the, um, that's maybe a bad example because technically the amount I get, thanks to MEV bots, will always be like the, the, the lowest slippage I set, right? Or rather the highest slippage and the worst price. But okay, like 
that aside, right, the the amount I get from the trade, right, depends on the actual amounts in the pool, and that depends on all their transactions. So if I sign a transaction, I say, hey, this is the exact result I'm going to get from this trade. Imagine you do, you do that on Ethereum today, right? You say, you know, you set the slippage to zero. What's going to happen to your transaction? It's going to revert, right? Like 100% guaranteed. Like it's not like, you know, 99%, it's like 100% guaranteed. You sign your transaction, right? You set slippage to literally zero, it's going to revert, right? Uh, because someone else did, you know, they, they, moved, they, they did a trade before you. Right? The chance that you get in first exactly as soon as you sign it is almost zero. Right? Someone else gets another transaction in, they move the price a little bit, your slippage is non-zero, right? and then your, trans your transaction reverts. And that's basically what happens in Cardano, except instead of reverting, they actually make your whole transaction invalid. Because in, the, in their UTXOs, you have to sign over the effects. And if those effects are not actually what happens, then the transaction is invalid. Which basically means you had a system where users would try to make a swap, they would sign a transaction, they would send it, and they would get back, hey, the transaction is invalid. If you want to try again, sign a new transaction. They'd have to go in their hardware wallet and sign a new transaction and try again. Then, of course, you know, if there's 10 people using the DEX, they're going to get back again an error saying, hey, someone else got it in front of you, sign the transaction again. And this is obviously completely horrific, right? Like, there's no way this system will work at any scale whatsoever, let alone 10 people, you know, then now imagine you scale that up to a thousand people, right? All trying to make a USDC, I guess ADA in that case, if if it's on Cardano swap, right? There's just no there's 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 no way this system is tenable, right? It's tenable in Ethereum because on Ethereum you don't sign over the effects; you only sign over this is the action I want to take. Let the effects be what they be, right? And we at Fuel, uh, or rather the Fuel protocol, takes that approach where users do not sign over the effects. They sign over the actions, and there's actually nothing stopping you from doing this in the UTXO model. Like people don't think that you can do this, but it's like you totally can. We're we're all consenting adults, and there's nothing stopping you from having a protocol where you just sign over the action, but not its effects, and let the effects be decided later. And that's it. Like there's no there's no like special secret magic other than that. It's literally just we, we take UTXOs, users sign over the actions. And the way they go. Uh, so this enables the, basically the best of both worlds. You get the flexibility and ease of use of Ethereum. And if the user uses a fuel DEX like they would an Ethereum DEX, and they don't use, like our, our UTXO system has a bunch of other flexible stuff. It has account abstraction. It has uh, transaction scripts. It has a bunch of fancy stuff. But if you don't use any of that, if you use fuel like you use Ethereum, it is an identical experience to Ethereum. You just interact with the DEX, you sign a transaction once, you send it off, and it just goes. Right, I'm assuming like you know, someone doesn't try to like sell market sell you know a million ether, then you're fine. Your transaction will just get through, right? Uh, and this is different than systems like Cardano and especially well, especially Bitcoin because Bitcoin can't even support stateable smart contracts. Period, right? Uh, and so it combines the best of both worlds. You get the parallel transaction execution and performance from UTXOs while simultaneously getting the flexibility and ease of use of Ethereum. So one thing we commonly hear in this space, right, is there's trade-offs with everything. Um, and, and this system almost sounds like there, there, there isn't trade-offs, right? You're, you're picking, like, uh, the best pieces of both models and kind of combining in, into the, in those into that, this current model. And so when I hear that, it's like, it, first of all, it's incredibly exciting. But, but you know, do you have any, uh, in these first two uh, beta test nets, were there anything that came up that were like, okay, here, you know, maybe this portion is the trade-off that we're going to have to make for users? I mean, there have been, I mean... Let's, let me see if I can think of a good analogy. Uh, 
that actually let's let me think of it, if I can think of a good analogy that actually has no trade-offs. Uh, I mean, it, it could it could be as simple as you know, let's say we have a faster implementation of some cryptography thing, right? Uh, just as secure, right? Like if you have that, then there's no downside to just using it, right? Uh, like there can be cases where you can have a thing that is strictly better. Like it's just faster and also just as secure, even more secure, right? Uh, and the reason for this is that the thing that you're, is the current status quo could just be not great, right? If it's not great, then it's pretty easy to strictly improve it. Obviously, if you're already pushing the bounds of like optimality, then it might be hard to find something that is strictly better. But like if you're starting, if your base is not great, it's pretty easy to find something that is a strict improvement. Uh, and that's basically what we have today is that the EVM, when it started, was very rough. It had a whole bunch of patchwork changes over the years uh, that you know were necessary in some ways because of the backwards compatibility baggage requirement, because there were contracts live in Ethereum and the Ethereum community and developers didn't want to break those contracts, right? That's kind of like the, the social... Like the or like the you know, community like I don't say law but like you know the the understanding that let's not break the contracts as much as possible. There's a few that broke, but okay, as much as possible, let's not break these contracts. That's our social contract. That's what the word I was looking for: social contract. Uh, so there's kind of a requirement on on the EVM. So this isn't really like the fault of anyone. It's more like you know it started very rough because no one knew how to do how to design a blockchain VM that was stateful and all the stuff. You know, a bunch of patchwork, patchwork changes. And now it's in a state where there's a bunch of things about it that are just suboptimal. And we know better from working on Ethereum and the EVM itself. This isn't like, you know, some just some random person just shows up out of nowhere, right? Who's never touched blockchain before. There's like, you know, we've been, we've made, you know, many changes to Ethereum. And we also made many proposals and not we, not like me personally, but, you know, the Ethereum community and developers have made proposals to improve Ethereum, but they couldn't go in for the one reason that it would break backwards compatibility. Right, and it'll break some contracts. You know, when you're starting a new chain and then you roll up from scratch, you don't have state, right? Your state starts from you have an empty state, a chain genesis, so you can do whatever you want, right? And then you can make changes that are strictly better, but that are not backwards compatible. Which I think maybe is the part where you can say it's maybe not strictly better, in the sense that some tools, some language features, some other stuff may not work out of the box with a new system because the new system says, okay, we're going to make some changes that are explicitly not backwards compatible, not backwards compatible, they're breaking, so your tools won't work. And that's kind of where the con is. But this, importantly, is not a protocol thing, right? It's purely, uh, well, if the tools don't work, can you make the tools work, All right? Or can you make better tools? Uh, but it's not like a fundamental protocol thing. Like this is like purely just engineering work, make either make, maybe make the tools work or develop new tools. But it's not like a fundamental protocol thing that, you know, the fundamental trade-off that will never be fixed. It's purely just engineering work. So in that sense, it's a very good trade-off to make because engineering work can be solved by just working. Yeah, we can, we can definitely dive into that. And I also know you guys have spent a lot of time on, you know, the fuel tool chain itself and like taking the focus of, okay, well, if this is the trade-off, then, you know, let's invest in that and make it um, what, what we believe it can be. So uh, can you talk a little too, uh, not only the backwards compatibility features, but but also the work that's gone into the fuel tool chain? 
Yeah. So per perfect. Perfect. Let, let us to the next question, which is, okay, if we can either, you know, make the existing tools work, which is possible, there's no fundamental reason that things like Solidity and Foundry and Hardhat couldn't work with the fuel protocol. Like fundamentally, there's nothing really stopping that, but could we do better? Could we actually build better tooling that works for the fuel protocol on the fuel virtual machine, but potentially also for Ethereum? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, and that comes in two facets. One of them is a new language called Sway. The other one is, sorry, a new tool chain centered around Fork, the fuel orchestrator, but that really has some other extensions. So I'll start by discussing the language and why it's not just a good thing to have, but why I think it's needed, right? Uh, so surely most of your listeners are familiar with Solidity. If they haven't written it, they've surely heard of it. It's, the, it's basically the only language that people can use to write smart contracts for Ethereum and the Ethereum virtual machine. Viper, I guess, is an up and coming, well, it's not up and coming, it's actually quite old. But you know, it's kind of gaining, gaining features and stuff on relatively recently. So sure, up and coming. It's an up and coming language as well that a few projects use, but by and large, the most used language by like a wide margin is Solidity. And Solidity is not great. And I don't say this just because I like, you know, have like a personal vendetta against the language or its authors, but rather I've written like a decent amount of Solidity and other people on the team have written like a pretty decent amount of Solidity. Uh, and it's not a great language and not just because it doesn't look right, but because it has a bunch of things in it that aren't safe and that aren't well-designed. So let me start by describing some things that are unsafe and tell you why, if we had a new, why, okay, well, I'll, I'll start by saying here are some things that are unsafe and then, you know, Sway fixes them. <laughs> Sway fixes this. So one thing that would be unsafe is uh, there's a mechanism in the Ethereum virtual machine to get the signer from a signature and the message that they've signed. Right? You can get, what is the address that signed this? This seems like a pretty reasonable operation, right? Uh, you know, pass in a signature, pass in, here's the message they signed, and then you get back an address. Fantastic. But here's the problem. The problem is that what happens if, for whatever reason, because of the cryptography and stuff, that you can't actually get the signer of the, 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 what happens if you can't get the signer? And this could be, there's some like weird cryptography corner cases, but it could also just be that the signature and the message don't, just don't match up, right? They just like gave you just random garbage, right? You just felt like someone just feeds in random garbage, right? What does Solidity do? Solidity returns with no indication that there's an error. It just returns the address zero. So like 20 bytes worth of zeros. And that's all, this, this returns that. Now here's the thing, unless you go in yourself as a developer and read the documentation that, hey, there's a corner case here. There's a case that if the signature is invalid, that you're going to get back address zero and you have to check for that, then it could be the case that, you know, if you don't check for that, then someone, basically anyone in the world could impersonate address zero. Now imagine if you used address zero for holding like a bunch of coins that you burned and anyone can impersonate the address zero by just sending an invalid signature. Do you see how that would be terrible? Because <laughs> then they can just withdraw all the coins of address zero. Anyone in the world can do this by just sending any, they just make generate, you know, some random 65 bytes and now they steal, they steal a bunch of coins that were supposed to be burned, right? 
But there's nothing in Solidity itself that encourages you, encourages you or forces you to actually check that case. Now, what, does, what do modern languages do, such as Rust? And Sway is a Rust-based language, so it takes a lot of inspiration from Rust, but adds a bunch of blockchain-specific features, and specifically for the Fuel VM and also the Ethereum virtual machine, because those two are very similar, uh, as first-class citizen, first citizens in the language, which also means that you can have native support from the Sway compiler for those features. And we'll get to in a second examples of why that you can do something in the Sway compiler that you can't do in the Rust with a Rust program using using the Rust compiler. So uh, where was I going with this? So uh, in Rust, you have... Uh, you have... Let's see, you have this notion of a result. And the result can be one of two things. A result can either be okay or it can be an error, right? Uh, and the... The, the, the function in Sway, because Sway, Sway also has this, the function in Sway that allows you to recover the signer address does not return an address. It returns a result of an address. So what that means is if the operation completed successfully and it returns an okay result, it will contain the address, right? The, the address of the signer. But... If the operation was not successful because the, the signature was invalid, it will, it will return an error result, right? So it effectively wraps the address in a result. And then it'll tell you, is this okay or is it an error, right? So it's additional information. And the important part is to get the address, you can't just use the address right away. You actually have to unwrap it, right? You have to unwrap it and go into the okay or the error. And this is enforced by the type system of the language, and the compiler enforces this. So you cannot write a Sway program that does not try to either unwrap the result or that checks both arms. So it has to like exhaustively check, okay, is it, an, is it okay or is it an error? And you can't write a Sway program that just directly uses the address without doing one of those things. While in Solidity, you can write a Solidity program that just directly uses the address, and there have been many cases of developers forgetting to check for address zero. So this is something where fundamentally at the language level, like people can't even deploy such a contract. The compiler will not compile a contract that does not like unwrap the result because it's not valid. It's not valid sway, right? And it wouldn't be valid Rust either because it's based on Rust. Right? So this is an example where the language itself stops you from shooting yourself in the foot. You don't have to read any docs. You don't have to do anything else. You just run, you just write sway code and there's no possible way for you to get it wrong. And modern languages are built like this. They stop you from shooting yourself in the foot. And if you try to shoot yourself in the foot, then they stop you from doing it. And they give you big warnings or big errors that describe exactly what you're doing wrong. Right? And it should be like a no-brainer to anyone that the best way to stop people from losing a bunch of money is, well, make sure that developers can't write bad contracts. Right? Don't trust the developers to be like 10x coders that can you know, just write inline assembly and write a whole contract in assembly and not make any bugs. That's crazy. That doesn't scale. All right? That's very unsafe. Make the compiler do a bunch of work to make sure that contracts are safe. And this is why if you go to the Sway repo, I'm going to go right here to make sure I don't get the quote wrong. If you go to the Sway repo, this is different than many other blockchains or 
many other uh, tools and stuff. A lot of tools say, oh, I'm so fast. I'm so performant, right? I'm so, uh, all that stuff. Uh, if you go to the Sway repo, the quote that it says is empowering everyone to build reliable and efficient smart contracts. Not fast. It's not that the compiler is fast. It's not that the contracts you write are going to be fast. They're going to be reliable and efficient. So they're not going to be wasteful. Uh, and, and most importantly, they're going to be reliable. Safety is the important thing. Because it doesn't matter how fast your blockchain is, if people can't write safe smart contracts for it, people will lose money. So what's, an, what's another example where Sway, and one of the reasons we don't go for Rust, what's another example of Sway and the compiler providing you additional security guarantees that Solidity, Solidity does not? Uh, there's two of them. One of them is payability. The other one is reentrancy. Let's cover payability first because it's a less exciting one. And I'll save the most exciting one for last. Very interesting. So payability. So what is payability? Uh, it's a keyword that was introduced a few Solidity versions back. And the developers of the Solidity language, like the compiler developers, had the misguided notion that, hey, we want people to stop losing Ether. We don't give a fuck about tokens, just Ether, right? We want people to not lose their Ether. So what we're going to do is we're going to introduce a new P keyword payable. If someone says an ABI method is payable, then it can receive Ether. Fantastic. But if a method is not payable, in other words, if they don't include, they don't type in, okay, I should type like this. I, I actually type with my fingers, but okay, a normal person types like this. Okay, so pay, payable. So they don't type payable, right? Which is like, I don't know, seven characters or something. Yeah, so seven characters. So they don't type those seven characters plus a space, so eight characters in total into the API method. The compiler will actually inject into the runtime bytecode. That is A, you have to deploy it. So it costs you to deploy and B, every single user that runs your contract, runs that ABI method, needs to execute that code. That's, there's a shitload of gas being wasted. All the Ethereum phone nodes in the world have to then execute these checks. And they check, hey, are you trying to send Ether to this function? If you are, then I revert, right? And this is not good. Uh, it's not good because it increases both the contract bytecode size, which is a big problem in Ethereum specifically because contract sizes on Ethereum are limited. In Fuel, we... Don't have an unlimited contract size, but we have a much larger contract size. Uh, technically up to 64 megabytes, modulo some overhead and stuff, as opposed to the 24 kilobytes of Ethereum. So you can have much larger contracts. On Ethereum, contract size is, is a problem because if you have to split up your contract into multiple smaller contracts, you can incur much larger overheads by having to call between contracts instead of just having to do a simple jump within the same contract. So it's very bad that bytecode size increases with payability because it's very easy to hit the 24 kilobyte limit. If that limit wasn't there, then maybe this wasn't it wouldn't the bytecode size wouldn't be so bad. But because of that, it's a very big problem. The bigger problem, of course, is the runtime cost. It means every single user that interacts with your contract, not just directly, but also indirectly through other contracts, has to pay this cost, right? And it's ridiculous. And what have optimizers done? They have started, well, they just add payable to everything. If they add payable to everything, then the compiler isn't generating that runtime code, and therefore my contracts are cheaper. And instead of relying on this code to save users from shooting themselves in the foot, well, just let the wallet do it, right? The wallet should just not let you send ether to like a pay, to a to, to to some particular uh, endpoints, right? Let the wallet do it, or let the app front end do it, right? Just the rely on the, the front end developers, right? Like if you're on the same team, just just rely on the front end developers to not to not lose user funds, right? That's where the work should be. It should not be every single Ethereum full node verifying that you know the wallet didn't do its job. Just wallet, do your job. 
right? Uh, and again, this only applies to Ether, not even to tokens. Uh, Fuel does support multiple native assets, so payability analysis also applies to tokens on Fuel, not just Ether. Now, the cherry, the, the icing on the cake, or the cherry on the icing, whatever you want to call it, is that the Solidity developers actually tied a runtime check, sorry, a runtime like code generation thing with a compile time check. The Solidity developers also have in the compiler a check that if you try to call a payable function in forward ether, a compile time, or sorry, if you try to call a non-payable function and you try to forward it ether, it'll tell you, hey, you can't do that at compile time. And this is a good check because it's free. It happens at compile time, right? Users don't have to deploy any code, that's a pretty good check, right? It prevents you from accidentally calling a non-payable function when sending an ether. But therein lies the problem. The problem is that they've tied together this analysis with a payable keyword, and they all bundled it together. And because optimizers have started putting payable everywhere to uh, to avoid like the but the bytecode being generated, it means that this analysis never actually runs because people just put payable everywhere. And of course, you can send a payable method ether, right? So this is an example of a short-sighted feature that just A, should never have been introduced without actual product like research and like user and developer research. And B, there are actually suggestions now to just straight up just remove this because it's useless. It's worse than useless. It just adds verbosity. And now just people put a payable everywhere and it's useless, right? With Sway, we have the payability, the compile time payability analysis I mentioned, but it happens entirely at compile time, no runtime. And not only that, this is supported not just in the language, but also supported higher up in the stack, such as the SDK and such as the wallet. So it's not just something that happens in isolation because at Fuel Labs, we develop the entire stack integrated. It means that we can have things like the compiler developers talk to the front-end developers and the SDK developers, they all talk to each other and they develop features that the whole stack can use and actually does use, which is different than the Ethereum ecosystem. So now onto re-entrancy, which is the most exciting part, which is that Every week I go on Twitter, every week re-entrancy. What devs do something, right? There's a new re-entrancy exploit. Someone has lost money because of the same thing that the DAO got hacked by. People have not learned. And it'd be very easy for a custom for a compiler that is configurable, because it's like a compiler for a language that you control completely, such as Solidity or such as Sway, to check, hey, are you violating the check effects interaction pattern? If you are, then you could be vulnerable to reentrancy, right? This is like the check effects interaction pattern has been known for years, right? It should be easy to check, and yet auditors aren't catching it exhaustively, right? And you could say, oh, just use Slither, just use some like verification tool. But you know, why are people having reentrancy issues even to this day? Because people don't use Slither, right? Uniswap, the Uniswap router from the Uniswap Labs team, not like some you know third-rate foreign foreign developer that couldn't speak English, right? The Uniswap Labs team, they had a reentrancy vulnerability, right? The notion of, oh, just use this such and such third-party tool that's hard to configure, et cetera, et cetera, not well-supported, not well-documented, just use a third-party tool is baloney. No one does it, and that's why the Uniswap, that's why the Uniswap router just a few weeks ago was vulnerable, was found to be vulnerable to reentrancy. These kind of things need to be built in to the tools by default that you cannot write I don't want to say Solidity code, but you can't, you can't, like if you can write your smart contract without running these tools, then the tool is useless. And that's why reentrancy checking is built into the Sway compiler. You cannot write a Sway program without this being checked. It is first class like analysis, uh, as opposed to requiring a third party tool 
that may go out of may not go out of support. You know, may not be supported with the latest release of the language, et cetera, et cetera, and that you may not even run or may not even know about. With Sway, the analysis is done and it must be done if you want to write Sway. Uh, and the Sway compiler will actually check: Hey, are you violating a check effects interaction? If you are, as you're interested, it'll warn you. Potentially, it could error. This is like there's a bit of debate between if it should be a warning or an error, uh, because reentrancy is such a big, such a big thing. But regardless, it will actually analyze and cache this. And you couldn't do this if we were using the Rust compiler, because the Rust compiler doesn't know what check effects interaction is, right? If all you are doing is just using like the Rust, if you sorry, if all you're doing is using the Rust language, right? Okay, sure, you can write an SDK for your Rust language, and if you use it idiomatically, in other words, if you don't violate check effects interaction yourself, then okay, you're now vulnerable to reentrancy. I mean, that is tautologically true, but it's also useless, right? <laughs> because then the compiler isn't doing any work. Uh, and that's what distinguishes Sway from Rust, and that's why Sway is the premier and safest smart contract language, because it takes all our learnings around how, around the specific vulnerabilities of blockchain programs and blockchain contracts, and it can add all the security checks into the compiler. So again, it's not about, oh, it's not blazingly fast compiler, right? The compiler is pretty fast, right? But the, the, our goal is not to write the fastest compiler. Our goal is to enable reliable and efficient smart contracts and to empower developers to be able to write those. Well, that was a lot. I'm definitely going to have to go back through and, and re-listen to this episode. But I do have a question I've got to ask you as someone who comes from the Ethereum community first, and that's pioneering kind of the modular movement. Um, you know, Ethereum's core value proposition is like kind of the decentralization ethos. So I'm just, I hear you talk about trust minimized light clients, the ability for users to run full nodes. If there are DA layers and, you know, uh, modular execution layers that can truly decentralize, like how do you think Ethereum fits in into kind of the modular future? Yeah, so I don't really envision Ethereum going out of style in terms of its settlement layer capabilities. Uh, you know, it's still, it is still the premier settlement layer for smart digital assets, if you want to call it that, uh, you know, programmable digital assets. Uh, there's not really any second best there because Bitcoin doesn't provide you that level of pro programmability. Uh, and there's no reason that Ethereum can't remain the settlement layer for the foreseeable future. In terms of data layers, I mean, Ethereum is working uh, relentlessly towards improving itself and adding improved data layer capabilities, both natively through things like dank sharding and proto dank sharding, along with uh, through the help of Third-party, uh, third-party, you know, synergistic systems such as Eigenlayer or Celestia that can either bridge or you know restaking or what have you to improve its data availability capacity, all retaining certain properties of Ethereum. So it's definitely going to be the center focus for the foreseeable future for you know any blockchain that wants to connect to anything reasonable. Interesting. Now, I just have one more question as it relates to fuel, because you've already been so generous with your time. But where does the value capture come into play? I imagine MEV is going to be pretty prominent in this uh, in this architecture. But correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. So since it is a smart contract platform instead of just a like payments platform, then yes, there will inevitably be MEV, and that MEV will be capturable in the form of transaction fees for the block producers or block producers if there's decentralized block production. Interesting. All right. Well, great. Um, do you want to share with people where they can find you and learn more about Fuel? Yeah. So if you want to follow me directly, I'm on Twitter at jadler0. Uh, if you want to follow Fuel Labs and the work that we're doing, you can follow us at Labs underscore. Uh, so Twitter is probably the best place to reach out for either news, updates, uh, anything like that. 
Uh, and yeah, we'll also be at East Denver. We'll be making a pretty big splash there, uh, hint into Alpha League. So be sure to check us out there as well. Great. Thanks so much, John. We'll catch you later. Thank you so much for having me.